Welcome to the Seven Hills Church Podcast with Marcus Mika. We're excited you're here listening as Pastor Marcus is about to bring an incredible teaching that is sure to inspire, motivate, and lift you up. You can visit us on our website at sevenhillschurch.tv or download our free Seven Hills Church app to watch or listen to more exclusive content. Thank you for tuning in and we hope you enjoyed the message. Second Timothy chapter four, Second Timothy chapter four. I want to talk to you for just a little bit on the magnetism of the finish line. I read a lot of books. Um, I am a fan of uh, Lance Armstrong, and uh, I know that his reputation has been impacted through cheating and different things like that. But his books uh, really have helped me um, just think about life. And I read his book, It's Not About the Bike. It talks about his cancer and overcoming his cancer. It is a phenomenal book. He talks about in another one of his books how uh, every second counts about all the Tour de France's. He talks about the falls. He talks about the pain. He talks about having to push through injuries like broken ribs, the pressures of winning, viruses, being sick and still having to race. In one race, he forgot his water and lost 15 pounds during that race. And he ultimately ended up winning that race. On the 100th Tour de France, he was in second place making up ground on the race leader when a spectator threw out a yellow souvenir bag in front of him and he went down and everybody starts to pass him. And he's on the ground and he said he's laying there knowing there's no way he can win. But there was a voice on the inside of him. We know that that voice was some performing enhancing drugs and some blood doping. But nonetheless, he gets up and he ends up winning the 100th Tour de France after the fall. And they ask him this question. They said, what? made you get up after that fall. He said, I cannot explain it, but there's something about the magnetism of the finish line. The magnetism of the finish line. Both Jesus and the Apostle Paul talked about the magnetism of the finish line. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7, Paul says, I fought a good fight. I finished my course. I've kept the faith. In Hebrews chapter 12, Luke writes about Jesus saying, Wherefore we're encompassed with a great cloud of witnesses. Let us lay aside every weight and sin, and let us run with patience the race set before us. We, of course, look unto Jesus who is the author and the finisher of our faith, who himself, because of the joy that was set before him, endured the cross. Paul is on his deathbed as he writes those words, I've fought my fight, I've kept the faith, I've finished my race. Luke writes about Jesus on the other side of the cross, both referencing these men finished. They finished their course They finished their race. What made them push through things like the cross? 
Paul, things like imprisonment, things like being stoned to death, all the persecution, all the attacks they faced, every decision, every choice that they made, we know now, even though as they lived, we didn't have it clear at the end of their life, they said it was the magnetism of the finish line that drove them. Not just in how they died, but in how they lived. The choices they made, the decisions, how they gave, how they loved, how they sacrificed, how they served, all of it they attributed to the magnetism of the finish line. Something was pulling on Paul. Something was pulling on Christ as he went through the cross. And something should be pulling on us. And that something is the magnetism of the finish line. We know the scripture says several things about the race that we're all in. 1 Corinthians chapter 9 says, Do you not know that in a race all runners run, but only one gets the prize? So we are to run in a way that we should win. It goes on to say in verse 26, Don't run like someone that's aimless, and don't fight like someone who beats the air. In other words, the first rule of a race is you have to have aim. Your faith has to have a target. It has to have the finish line. If you don't, then what a lot of Christians live their life like is no direction, no clarity, all over the place, emotionally up and down. One day they're all in, the next day they're out. One second the trial comes and and they're bouncing, they're quitting, they're giving up. Why? It's because they haven't learned the first rule of a race, and that is you remove all distractions. Whatever's distracting you, you have to learn to shut it down. Whatever's trying to get you off course, you have to learn to shut it down. You have to learn to remove all distractions. There's a book called The Pilgrim's Progress. It has an incredible story, an allegory in it. It's about a man by the name of Christian. Christian's on this journey and he's facing a difficult task. He's carrying a burden. A fearful burden that he knows is going to destroy his life. He meets another individual in the story by the name of Evangelist. And Evangelist is wanting to know why he's staying in this condition. Why he's carrying this burden and he knows this burden is going to destroy his life. And he's saying, why don't you just let it go? Why don't you drop it? Why don't you move on from it? And he literally says, I do not know what to do with the burden. Evangelist gives Christian a letter that really is an example of what happens when we open up the scriptures. And Christian, for the first time, gets a clear picture of what it's going to look like to drop this burden, but he doesn't know how. He doesn't know where to go, and he doesn't know what to do. And so he asks the evangelist, what am I supposed to do, and where am I supposed to go? An evangelist points across the field, and he says, you have to go to the other side of that field. Do you see on the other side, there's a narrow gate? And Christian says, I can't see it. He says, do you see that light, that shining light on the other side of the field? And Christian says, yeah, I I see it. I see the light. And the evangelist says, whatever you do, go across the field, stay focused on that light. If you'll go after that light, when you get there, you'll see a narrow gate. And there will be a keeper that will tell you what you need to do when you get to the other side of the field. And so Christian listens to the evangelist. He sets out. He's going after 
that light that he sees. He's traveling. And as he begins to leave his old life and his burden, there's voices that mock him. Voices that are trying to lure him back. Old relationships, old friendships. His past is trying to pull him back away from where he's going. And Christian in the story does something that every Christian on this planet needs to learn to do. He puts his fingers in his ears and he starts shouting, Life, 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 eternal life. You see, if you're going to let the magnetism of the finish line Be a part of your life. You have to learn to remove distractions. You have to learn that there's all kinds of voices. Voices of your past. There's critical voices. Voices of self-doubt that are going to try to get a hold of you. And you have to learn to put your fingers in your ears and say, no, I'm not listening to you. I'm staying focused. I'm going to keep moving. And you have to learn to let the voice that God gave you and the Spirit of God in you to be louder than the voices that are trying to distract you. The second thing the Bible says you have to learn to do if you're going to run the race in a way that you can win is you have to lay aside weights. Hebrews 12 and verse 1 says, lay aside every weight. 1 Corinthians 6, 12 says, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are beneficial. So there are things in the Bible that are not described as sin. And a lot of Christians say, well, the Bible doesn't say this right here is sin. The Bible doesn't say this is going to keep me out of heaven, so I guess it's okay that I do it. But the Bible says you have to take one step further and ask yourself, is this beneficial? Not is it lawful, not can you get away with it and slip into heaven. Is it beneficial? Is it benefiting you? Is it building you? Is it encouraging you? Is it strengthening you? Because what most Christians end up doing is they live their whole life weighted down, not because they're living in sin, but because they're making choices and living a life that's weighing them down. They're just doing things that are not beneficial. Every now and then, I, I work out a lot. Most of you know that. And when I work out, sometimes they'll introduce a weighted vest to the workout. And all you have to do is take a already difficult workout. Let's say on a scale of 1 to 10, it's a 5. It's difficult, it's hard, but then they give you a 20-pound vest. It takes it to a 10 immediately. And you'll be running with just this 20 pounds. And you'll be like, why, is it, why, why do my knees hurt so bad with just 20 extra pounds? Why am I so slow? Why am I losing energy? Why, why, why is a pull-up a pull hard enough, but you add 20 pounds, that pull-up's completely different because weight drains you and the enemy knows that and so what he tries to do is he gets us weighted down weighted down by things that that many times people say well I don't know if it's sin to stay bitter I don't know if it's sin to stay on the fringe of the church you know not really be all in not really go all not not really say man I've got it's not a sin to say I love Jesus but my life's not completely surrendered to him it's it's not a sin and our whole life is lived trying to say how close to the world can we get and still make it to heaven and the problem with that is it weighs us down 
And the Christian life becomes so much more difficult because of your bad relationship choices, because of poor behaviors and old habits and letting the past define you and a lack of commitment to the race and the purpose that God's giving you. Those things weigh you down. And those weights drain you over time. And you're doing the same things that you always do, but they're hard. It's way harder than it needs to be because there's a weight to you. Ezekiel chapter 44 says, when you come into the presence of God, you shouldn't wear anything that makes you sweat. Think about that. When you come into a church service like this, when you come in to worship, when you hear preaching, you shouldn't be bringing anything in that makes you sweat. When you come into the presence of God, you shouldn't be having things that are so weighty that you can't enjoy worship. You can't enjoy worship. It's not that you're not right with God. It's not that you're not a Christian. It's not that he doesn't love you. It's not that you don't understand forgiveness and grace. It's that you know there are other things that are distracting you and weighing you down. And so in worship, you just kind of are sweating things. You're sweating life out there. You're sweating a situation that's out of your control. You're just sweating those things. And again, it's lawful for you to come in and not enjoy worship. But the problem is, in worship, you're not supposed to be weighted down. The Bible says you're supposed to bring in that spirit of heaviness. And you're supposed to put on a garment of praise. And in worship, you're supposed to be energized and filled. And and, and you're supposed to come into God's presence and actually walk out being free you're not supposed to walk out being heavy during preaching right now you should be stirred right now you should be saying okay I can't wait I I, I know there's things that the enemy's been in my ear to quit and to back up and to pull back on but but in a message like this you should be sensing something re-energize you but if you have weight on you then you're here thinking "I, I I wonder if Because of this weight, because of this issue, because of this compromise, instead of hearing what God wants to say to you, your mind's just spinning around, I have this weight, this weight, this weight, this thing, this situation, this person, this offense, this unforgiveness, this habit, and you can't be energized, and you're in the presence of God, you're around the word of God, but because of the weight, you're carrying, you're sweating, and it's harder than it needs to be. And the Bible says if you're going to run in a way that you can win, you not only have to lay aside the sin and bring the sin to Christ, but you have to say, what things are weighing me down? What things are slowing me down? What things are trying to hold me back? The third thing that the scripture teaches us about running this race, the magnetism of the finish line, is you have to protect your focus. Ecclesiastes 9 and verse 11 says, I returned and saw under the sun that a race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor the bread to the wise, nor riches to men of understanding, nor favor to men of skill, but chance, time and chance happen to them all. In other words, when we think about a race, we think about how fast can we go, and we think about Number one, winning the race, being the best, having more than others, doing more than others. But that's not what the Bible talks about when it comes to winning the race. It says something different happens during the race that you and I have to protect the focus that God wants you and I to have. 
And the question in the race that God gives us is not, are you number one? It's, is he remaining number one? And you got to be cautious to not compare yourself to other people that are going faster. Than, remember the disciples? Mary comes and says, Jesus, he's, he's raised from the dead. He's alive. He's not in the tomb anymore. And the Bible says one of the disciples takes off running. And then another disciple takes off running, Peter, and beats him to the tomb. So one disciple outruns the other disciple, gets to the empty tomb first, but he's so exhausted, he doesn't actually do what he was running for, and he doesn't walk in and enter into the empty tomb. He outruns him, but when he gets to the end, he quits. The very reason he was running, he stops because he's too exhausted. And the other disciple that just paced himself, protected his focus, walks right by him and into the empty grave. It doesn't matter how fast you are, how quick you are, how successful you are. If you're number one in their minds, you have to be asking yourself, am I protecting my focus? Is he number one every step of the way? On October 20th, 1968, Several thousand spectators were in the Mexico Olympic Stadium. The last of the marathon runners were showing up. They were exhausted. They were being carried off to first aid stations. Over an hour earlier, Mamo Waldi of Ethiopia had finished the race. The 26-mile, 385-yard event, he ended up winning. Most of the spectators begin to leave when they were distracted by the sound of sirens and police whistles. And they looked out and a man wearing the Tanzania colors entered the stadium. His name was John Stephen Aquari. He's running, his legs bloodied and bandaged. He's limping every step that he takes. His face is wearing the pain. He hobbles around the 400-meter track, eventually is close to the finish line, and the remaining spectators rose, and they begin to applaud, and they begin to cheer, and they begin to shout, and they begin to celebrate as though he had won the marathon. He crosses the finish line, and they asked him, why did you keep on going when there was no chance of a medal, there was no chance of you winning. You were obviously injured. There would have been no reason to not stop. And he said, my country did not send me 7,000 miles to start the race. They sent me 7,000 miles to finish the race. <laughs> Hebrews 12.1, let us run with patience. Let us run with patience the race that is set before us. You have to protect your focus. All kinds of things along the way are going to try to push you, get you to rush things, get you to strive, get you to start competing and comparing. But you have to keep your focus every step of the way that my job is to reach the finish line. My job isn't to beat you or keep up with them or keep up with so-and-so. My job is to finish the race that has been set before me and it requires great focus and great patience. 
Number four, you have to perform for an audience of one. One of the great composers of our world in history is George Frederick Handel. In his time, crowds by the thousands would show up to listen to his work. They said, though, that he was peaking too early because his projects begin to fail one after another and the audiences begin to dwindle and the stress of his failures begin to be so severe that palsy struck him and his hands and his fingers became crippled. And they said he's just a thing of the past. He's a has-been. He's gone. He's done. He's finished. His best days are behind him. He doesn't have a chance. Inspiration is exhausted from this guy. But on August 22nd, he received some words from a friend that were actually scriptures. From Isaiah chapter 40 that says, Comfort ye my people. And he was so inspired that for 23 days he wrote what became the Messiah. And crowds gathered March 23rd, 1743, to hear his new work. And as he's going through the different choruses and the different things he had composed, he gets to the apex of his production, and it was called the Hallelujah Chorus. And as he begins to sing those words, Hallelujah, he shall reign forever and forever, in the middle of the audience was King George II. And to the audience's surprise, this distinguished king, right as the hallelujah chorus hits its peak, the king jumps up on his feet and begins to celebrate and begins to sing. And for hundreds of years, from that point on, audiences have stood in reverence as those words are declared and sang, hallelujah, our king reigns forever and forever. My point is this. The goal of our life has to be that when our life is composed and the chorus is being sang, that it's getting the attention of the king. I appreciate if you like Seven Hills. I appreciate if you like this sermon. I really do. Because there's thousands of eyeballs looking at me. Hundreds of people having an opinion about me right now. And they have the same opinion about you. Right now people are saying, I'm not really sure I like this sermon. Where is he really going with this sermon? Do you really want to come back here? I'm not really sure he's got it. I'm not really sure he's anointed enough. Is it making sense to you? It's not making sense to me. And you come into a service like this and it's really easy for me to get into this room and wonder, do you like me? Are you, are you liking the message? Are you okay with the message? Did I say that right? Am I theologically accurate? Is there maybe a scholar in the audience that knows Greek and Hebrew better than I did? Did I quote that scripture wrong? Am I doing this right? Or I can come into a room like this and just simply say, listen, I appreciate that you're here. I hope you're getting something out of this. But ultimately, at the end of the day, my job is the chorus of my life and the production of my life has to perform for an audience of one. And my job is the king, and his name is Jesus, stands up on his feet and says, well done, good and faithful servant, then I have all the audience I need because he's the one I'm looking to please. Now, can I just say something? Thank you so much. I didn't, wasn't trying to get you to stand up for... But we all have the same thing. 
We all have the same thing, don't we? We get distracted by all kinds of things. Do they like me? What if, what if they leave? What if they aren't with me? What if... But you have to come to... If you're going to have the magnetism of the finish line drive you, you have to have something in you that says, I'm performing to have the king stand on his feet. And listen, listen to how you know. Listen to how you know if that's what your drive is. Listen. It's because... When you hit the finish line, he says this phrase, enter in my good and faithful servant. You mean not enter in my billionaire friends? Enter in so-and-so that's CEO or accomplished? Enter in so-and-so that's famous and -and so-and-so that's got this? No. Enter in faithful servant. Servant. And if I get those words from him, then I finish my course. I finish my race. Number five, you have to learn to run hurt. The Bible says Jesus endured the cross. There was a joy that was on the other side of that. There was a finish line that was on the other side of that. But he had to push through the pain of the crucifixion. Derek Redmond was almost halfway done with his 400 meter race during the 1992 Summer Olympics in Barcelona. Right in the middle of the race, his hamstring popped. The pain brought him immediately to the ground. The medical staff rushed out onto the track trying to hurry him onto a stretcher when he forced them to get off the track and wave them away. He pulled himself back to his feet. In incredible pain, he begins to hobble his way around the track. His dad, who is in the stands, runs out of the stands by the spectators, through the watching competitors. The security tries to grab his dad. He breaks through the security. He outruns security until he finally reaches his son, who's hobbling on the track, and he puts his arms around his son and helps him about 120 meters. And then two meters before the finish line, he lets his son cross the finish line. On his own. And he says, I'm the proudest father alive. I'm prouder of him than I would be had he won the gold medal. It took a lot of guts for him to do what he did. And that's the heart of God. The heart of God is you can read it all throughout Scripture. You can be the prodigal who's messed up, who's ruined his life, who's hurt who's injured, who's devastated, and in your mind, what's the point? Why keep moving? Why keep running? Why keep going? But the prodigal son learned something. We have to learn about the God in heaven that we have. His father saw him from afar off, and the Bible says he ran out to meet him. And you and I, along the race of life, are going to be injured. We're going to be hurt. 
We're going to be wounded. And we're going to have our reasons to pull back and not continue. But in those times, we have to remember that we have a God in heaven that knows how to run out and meet us right where we're at. And he knows how to grab us and carry us and help us and move us when we can't move ourselves to the finish line. I'm closing with this. The magnetism of the finish line. Hebrews 6, 19. Hope we have as an anchor of our soul. The word hope in Hebrew means cord or rope. And hope we have as an anchor of our soul is what the Bible says. In the sailing world, there's a term called kedging. And what kedging is, is you take an anchor and you know a storm is coming. You know that there's a place that you want to go, but the way the storm is blowing in, it's going to force you away from the direction you set out to get. And so they get in a boat and they row out as far as they can and they drop the kedging anchor in the direction they want the ship to go during the storm. And they drop the kedging anchor in and once it hits the bottom, they run that cord, that line, back to the ship. And then when the storm comes, they use a winch as the waves and the winds try to push the ship off course, they use a winch to pull that ship in the direction they set out. It's the magnetism of the finish line. The Bible actually teaches us that people actually think the way you get to where you want to go is by thinking about what's my next step. What's the next thing that I do, which is not the way you get where you want to go. The Bible says you have to go to the end of the thing first. That the end of the thing actually is the thing that gives you an anchor. And then you come back and say, now how do I keep going? How do I keep moving? And, and through life, the distractions are going to come. The storms are going to come. The weights are going to come. The injuries are going to find their way into your life. But if you have the rope of hope along the way, then you, and you have it anchored in the finish line, then through all those things, you just keep pulling yourself in to the finish line. I can remember, it was about year two as pastoring this church. And I felt like a total failure. I felt like I had ruined this church. My personal life was a mess. My spiritual life was a mess. The church in my opinion, they should have probably fired me. And I got a call from my pastor and he starts telling me about a situation in Orange County that he had been given. And he says, I called you because I wanted you to have the first choice. I know how bad it is there. I haven't told you this, but I need you to know I think you're wasting your time. You're wasting your time there. Get out. Just get out. I'll help you. Let's go to Orange County. I'll give you what you need. I'll have your back. Get out. 
But when Sarah and I drove into this city, I looked at her and I told her, if we're going to do this, we have to make an important decision. We were actually driving right through downtown Cincinnati across the bridge when I told her this. I said, if we're going to make it here, we have to buy burial plots. Because I knew enough that there was no way it was going to be easy. And there was going to be all kinds of reasons along the way to get off track. And I remember I told my pastor, I said, I just got to find out what all the attacks are about. I've got to find out why it's so hard. There has to be a reason it's so difficult. There has to be a reason I feel like I've got the attention of hell in this area for some reason. There has to be a reason. And, and because I had anchored in the end, instead of wondering each day, is it good today? Is it good today? Can I keep going today? Should I keep moving today? No, I anchored in the finish line. And so all the ups and downs, all the emotional highs and lows. Someday everybody loves me. Some days the same people that loved me yesterday can't stand me the next day. And, and you just keep grabbing that rope and winching your way to the finish line. You say, how do you get up when your marriage falls? There has to be a magnetism in you to the finish line. How do you raise kids when they're going crazy? There has to be a magnetism to the finish line. How do you stay committed to the gospel and the things of God when it looks like everything in this world is moving away from it? You have to stay. That magnetism to the finish line has to be there. Something on the inside of you as a believer. And I love how the Bible says it. How do we do it? We look unto Jesus, who's the author and the finisher of our faith. We have to stay focused on him and say, man, Jesus, you went through the cross. You went through the cruise and you did all of that because you saw us at the finish line. I think about seven hills and I think about when I look around the moments that I had that I kept winching forward. I kept pushing forward and now you look around and it's kind of it's kind of amazing. Maybe it's not amazing to you, but I know the backstory. It's amazing to me to see what God's done. But the truth of the matter is this isn't the finish line. We need people to jump in and go out into the future with us again and drop that anchor and make a decision. There's going to be distractions along the way. There's going to be weights along the way. There's going to be things that try to pull us back along the way. But if we'll anchor into the future, we'll keep moving through all the things that try to tell us to stop and to back up. See, I'm the kind of person that believes that God still wants to raise up a generation that's going to love and turn our world around. I still believe that God has amazing things for this city and this community. Listen, listen, to, listen to this. I, I, I shouldn't even tell you this story because I wanted to save it. But after last service, I went out into the lobby 
And I met this lady. I, I don't want to say how old she is because it, it's probably, I'll be inaccurate, but she was old. 86. So he knows the story. I mean, she's 86 years old. She's got her cane. And she said, I've been, I've always had a relationship with the Lord, but I've never found a church I could call home. Now listen to what she said. She says, my kids, my kids are getting baptized in two weeks. Now listen to what she said. She said, they're the ones. Now listen to what what she said. Matt and Ashley Cheek put their names in the foundation of this church. And my kids are the ones who brought me here. Now think about this, think about this. When we think about a city that we're trying to reach, you think about all the screens and the lights and all that. Surely you're just trying to reach young people. 86 years old. And she said she's been looking for a church for decades. For decades. For decades. 